When a, uh, when a student is struggling in a class, what do they need? What's maybe something that a teacher would do for them or tell them to do? Private instruction. Come see me after school for 30 minutes. Or here's the name of a good tutor who I can refer you to. Why is that? What are the benefits of that? Why is that a good approach? Say that again. One-on-one, which allows the tutor to assess what the student is lacking more specifically than a teacher in a classroom of 20 students, 30 Two-way communication, exactly. There's some more dialogue, more room for dialogue. You get to know the individual temperament and gifts and also lacks in the student, where, again, with if you've got 20 kids in a room, you just can't uh, focus on all of them that way. More likely to pay attention. More likely to pay attention. That's right. Because, because and that kind of goes to that communication aspect, right? Because there is, you know, if I'm talking to a classroom of 15 sixth graders, they're all over the place, but if I'm talking to one of them, I'm holding his or her attention more. Acknowledge that one's questioning. Right. Yeah, there's an acknowledgement of their questions. That's absolutely right. And they might feel more free to ask questions one on one than they would in a classroom of 15 students. Because you do get that idea of like, well, if I ask a question, then this other students will get mad at me or I'll look stupid or, you know, they'll get mad because then I'm, I'm extending the t- teaching time instead of us playing a game or, you know, doing an activity or something like that. Absolutely. Bond a relationship. Bond a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bond of relationship that can exist between tutor and pupil. You can have that with a teacher and a student in a large classroom. There are sometimes, you know, those students who will. But even then, that rela- any relationship you often have that's special with a, an individual student or an individual teacher is because of things that happen outside of just the actual classroom time. It's the, it's the student that stays after for a few minutes and talks to you or the student who, like I had this one student who used to do these things. He would buy all, all these pistachios. And he would do all this seasoning to them, you know, like he'd put all this seasoning in it. And then he'd bring me a bag of pistachios, like a little bag of every day. He'd give me a bag of pistachios. And I don't know. I mean, it was just one of those things where it was like I, we had this kind of bond because of that. But that was extra to the classroom time. You know, it wasn't. Um, so, so anyway, so yeah, so all of these um, things would help an individual student succeed. Um, perhaps above and beyond what they would get in the classroom. They get the one-on-one. You can address their individual needs and concerns and questions better um, when you're doing some sort of private tutoring. Well, guess what? Prayer is no exception to this rule. Prayer is no exception to this rule. There are people who struggle with praying. And even this, even the people who don't struggle with it could still benefit from some sort of you know, private one-on-one kind of counseling. And so this is where spiritual direction comes into play. Spiritual direction is, according to Martin Thornton, key to proficiency. You need a spiritual director. So what is spiritual direction? Let's define it. Um, It is help and guidance in prayer of one soul by another. The application of ascetical theology to the needs of the individual soul. 
I just started meeting with a spiritual director fairly recently, actually. Um, I tried to get Bishop, well, I asked Bishop Chad, who's a good spiritual director? And he said, well, I'll do it. And then he's very busy. And so it didn't work out for him to really do that. Um, so I found one, Father Mark Manise in, in North Carolina. And so that, you know, part of it, part of the first couple sessions has just been him asking me a lot of questions about myself, personality type, what I do, how I got to where I am. You know, those kind of things. He has to get to know me. Based on his knowledge of me, he then prescribes certain things. Try doing Lexio Divina, which is a kind of reading of scripture. Uh, try, you know, doing some sort of imaginative prayer, um, like a rosary where you're, you know, thinking through the, the decades and you're meditating on the mysteries of each, each decade. Um, because, because, you know, my personality type is a little more like I would rather read a book and so by, by, by pushing me into the imaginative prayer, that's good for me. You know, that helps me develop in ways that I probably wouldn't if I just read a book. So it's tailored to me. You know, he probably wouldn't tell you that. Um, he might tell you to read a book. You know, who knows? I don't know. Um, but anyway, so, so, so the idea there is help and guidance in prayer, one soul by another, applying ascetical theology to the needs of the individual soul. Thornton gives five reasons why spiritual direction is really important, and I think we touched on a lot of these in our analogy with the private tutoring. Um, The first is that um, private spiritual direction is concerned with the whole body of Christ. So we might think about this, right? If you're a teacher and you've got students in your classroom who don't get it, how does that affect the class? Well, it can kind of drag it down, can it? You know, if I'm teaching them second declension in Latin, and the student's like, well, what's a declension? It's like, well, we went over this already. Now I've got to stop class, taking away from the students who excel in order to address the student who doesn't, isn't quite tracking with everything. Whereas if I have one-on-one tutoring and I bring them up to speed, now they're not dragging down the, the, the rest of the class, right? So there's a collective element of private tutoring. Even though I'm focused on this one student, it's for the good of the class. Similarly, when we do spiritual direction, we're doing it with an individual person for the good of the body. Because we know that that person has their own gifts, they have their own strengths, they have their own things to contribute, and the director wants to kind of unlock that from the person to help them become the best Christian they can be. Um, and that's good for the whole body. And it also, again, helps us remember that, that you know, we're anchored to the body by being members, um, and so um, we're placing ourselves in a context. And sometimes it can take someone else to tell us kind of where we fit in. You know, we maybe don't always know where we fit in in the church. Um, and so the spiritual director might see that and be able to say, hey, I noticed this about you. you go, oh, I've never thought about myself that way. The second is that um, theology as a discipline has to be applied in order to be useful. Right? And, and we have to be very careful, um, too, because you know, holiness and sanctity and proficiency are not directly dependent on the intellect. So it doesn't really matter how much Thomas Aquinas you've read as far as whether you're holy or not. Our intellects can be a great aid. They can help us a lot. They can also be a hindrance at times, depending on how we use it. So I remember we, <laughs> at our church in Virginia, you know, we had liberty right there, and we would get these young men who would come to church every so often, who were like philosophy majors or theology majors, and they were, they were reading and exploring different ideas, and, and that was cool. I love that. 
but they would often ha- um, kind of lead with the theological before they would jump into anything liturgical or experiential. So I remember one kid came the first day, first conversation I ever have with this kid, 20 years old. Uh, Father, what are your thoughts on double predestination? <laughs> My thoughts are, I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> you know, are, Is that a bad question to ask? No, it's important because it is a doctrine about God. However, what, what ends up happening, you know, people develop these really specific theological convictions and then they never find a church, right? Because, the, because that's not really how church works. We are not all here because we agree on the doctrine of double predestination. I mean, some people probably are like, what is double predestination anyways? That reminds me of, of therapy. It's like people come to therapy and they'll talk about everything else except what the problem is. Yes. Double, double predestination for the record is, is the do, it's, a, it's a Calvinistic doctrine that God not only elects people to go to heaven, but he also condemns other people to go to hell. Um, so the, the Reformed Calvinists tend to hold to some form of double predestination. We do not. Uh, at least um, we're not required to. There are Anglicans who do, but most do not. Um, but you're exactly right. There is something kind of, um, I, I call them black holes, right? Because they want to kind of suck everything into that. Um, so like I, this... To avoid what they're there for. That's exactly right. Um, I, in fact, I remember this, this, this individual he messaged me and asked me, what do you think about the tenets of Calvinism? Total depravity, unlimited aton- um, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And he said, if you don't mind, you know, kind of going through each one and, and give me some Bible verses that kind of back up your opinions or whatever. I said, okay, this kid's young. You know, I, I'll, I'll help him out. So I sit down. I write this really lengthy response to him and I send it to him and then a few weeks later he asked me the same he's like what do you think about limited atonement I go well you know man I I told you what I thought about that in my email oh yeah I should probably read that (laughs) (laughs) never again never again um you know so yes so yeah uh, there's there's a kind of person who sees uh theology as a sort of game you know or 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 a purely mental exercise it's a way to feel smart it's a way to um you know um it's a, it's a good endeavor used badly. Let's just put it that way. Um, and that's, of course, not what we should use theology for. One of the keys to spiritual progress is stability, right? So this, that particular student who I was mentioning has been everything under the sun, Lutheran, Anglican, Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist. You know, I mean, he's done it all within like two years. You know, it's like, what's the flavor of the month? You know, I check in on Facebook every so often and see what he's doing. But stability is so important. In fact, I would say stability is more important than necessarily being correct on every single little issue, right? Like at a certain point, I told him, I said, I don't care where you go. Go to a Presbyterian church. I would never tell someone to go to a Presbyterian church, but at this point, just go to a Presbyterian church. I don't care. You know, you'd be better off just staying there and learning from them and, and anchoring yourself in that than this jumping around all the time. It's not good. Um, and so we don't want laity to be ignorant. I mean, it is important that we do Bible studies, that we do classes where we talk about what do we believe and why. Why are we doing what we do at the altar? I mean, all those kind of things are really important. And it's, you know, while that's true, there, it's also true that, um, that not every theological issue is of interest to the laity either. Um, so, you know, we're not going to necessarily sit around and talk about some of the more obscure points of theology. I'm not going to, um, read to you my thesis on Hugh of St. Victor and his Christology. I don't think you would find that interesting. Um, if you would, you let me know and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. 
So instead of trying to solve every little mystery of the faith, a lay person does a good thing when they place themselves under the care of a priest and a bishop or a qualified spiritual director and do as they're instructed so long as the priest or bishop or spiritual director isn't asking them to do something that's immoral or doctrinally unsound. And of course, again, there can be some negotiation here. So, you know, I mean, we've talked about this and I think it's no secret, you know, I like to pray Hail Marys and I like to ask the saints for prayer. I'm also aware there are people who don't like to do that and that's not of benefit to them. Well, you know, I don't think it would be right for that person to say you can't do that. If they came to me for spiritual direction, I wouldn't say, hey, go pray a bunch of Hail Marys. You know, there's some, there's some negotiation there. And, and, you know, that does reflect a doctrinal disagreement, but it's not a terminal one. But the idea here is that submission is a good idea. We don't want um, lay papacy, right? You know, that's one of the things, uh, you know, in the Reformation, we got rid of the Pope so that everyone can be their own Pope um, in many ways. You know, it's like the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which is not a good thing, by the way, right? So St. Bernard says, Bernard of Clairvaux, medieval theologian, says, if anyone makes himself his own master in the spiritual life, he makes himself scholar to a fool. (laughs) <laughs> so it's important to have a director who, who knows theology, who can help you apply that theology. He's not going to give you a lecture about theology every time you come for spiritual direction, but he, he, ha- he might have things in mind, theological you know, uh, positions or, or facts in mind that can influence his decision that will be of helpful to you. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but another reason why direction is important is that it frees us from the tyranny of feeling frees us from the tyranny of feeling, right? I mean, having emotions is a perfectly human thing. It's good, um, especially when they're disciplined and properly understood. You know, why does that make me feel sad? Why do I feel angry when that happens? Um, and so understanding that and then, and then kind of harnessing our feelings can actually be, um, have a good impact on our religious life. Feelings, however, are not, they are not a good guide for spiritual progress. They also do not indicate whether a practice is good or not. Oh, yeah, I tried that. I really wasn't feeling it. Not a a good assessment of the practice. Because often, that says more about you than it does about the practice, right? That's what I told my students. You don't like Latin? That says something about you, not about Latin. Um, Latin is innocent in all this. Um, but anyways, but yeah, but seriously though, the, the practice is objective. The practice is, is, is flows from the truth. The question is, how do we orient ourselves towards the truth? Right? So um, whether we feel good about it or not is not necessarily a, a, a reliable indicator. So how do we know if we're making progress then? If it's not feeling, what would be something that would indicate, yeah, you know what, I've been doing this for a year and I know there's real progress. What, what metric could we look at? For Martin Thornton, it's, are we committing fewer sins? Moral progress. Because this is all directed towards growing in holiness. And if we're committing fewer sins, if we're growing in virtue, well, that means that that's working. I found, you know, in my own experience, the more frequently I go to confession, the less I actually commit really serious sins. Because I'm keeping myself in check. I'm doing self-examination more often. I'm talking to a priest regularly about it. I have to admit to a priest that I'm doing whatever. So that comes into it too. You know, I'm about to do something. I go, 
man, I'll have to tell Father Gordon about this, <laughs> you know? So then I say, maybe I don't want to tell him about that, so I'm just not going to do it, you know? Um, but, that, but I think that's helpful, you know? And so, you know, do I always feel great about it? I think Deacon David one time preached a sermon about confession, and he said, you know what? Preparing for confession is awful. You know, it's not fun to do that. Um, it doesn't feel good because you're having to actually look at yourself under a microscope. And sometimes we don't always like what we see when we do that. Um, so if, if that was what we were judging it on, well, I don't really like the feeling that that gives me. Well, then, yeah, we're not going to do it. But is it making us holier? I, I found it makes me holier, um, and so I'm going to keep doing it. So direction frees us from the tyranny of feeling. Direction also is collaborative and empirical. And this is the really cool gift of Anglicanism, right? Um, there is a big difference between Anglican priests and the way they relate to parishes and the way Catholic priests relate to their parishes, and this isn't necessarily to say that one is always better than the other. Um, if, you, you know, if you go to a Catholic church, Roman Catholic church, often the priest will be a little bit aloof from the people. Uh, it's rare that a priest will like, go out for beers regularly with parishioners. I love to go out for beers with parishioners. If you ever want to go grab a beer, let me know. Um, and, and, you know, I think some of this, too, is the, is the fact that in Anglicanism, like, we can be married. I mean, you know, my wife and children are part of this community in a way that, you know, if I was a, a celibate Roman priest, they, I wouldn't have that kind of connection to the community. But, but there is this, this idea that the, the Anglican priest is enmeshed in the community. Um, and so um, direction, then, is not the director uh, merely telling you what to do. There is this sense of collaboration um, that's also empirical, meaning there's experimentation that goes on here. Hey, try this for a month and let me, let me know what happens when you do that and how you feel and what, what's going on with you when that happens. Or let's sit together and let's listen to what God is trying to say in this situation. You know, and and so, so the, the issue here is not really dogmatic. The, the director does not, shouldn't have an agenda going into the meeting of I need to get so-and-so praying, you know, 10 Hail Marys a day and five Our Fathers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's what's going to work for this person. It's pragmatic within the bounds of sound theological advice. So there's discussion. There's experimentation. There's even argumentation alongside guidance in spiritual direction. So it's not about the director being despotic. It's not about ordering the person they're directing around. That said, that's true for the, for the director What's true for the person being directed is that obedience is often good, right? A director might say, you should try this, and it's new to you. It may not be immediately something you see the value in, but give the director the benefit of the doubt and give it a try. So Thornton says, here are two souls, the spiritual director and the directed, joined in mutual support in a mutual quest to the greater glory of God and the redemption of the world. This is, in the best possible sense, a personal relation involving joy, suffering, and sacrifice. The bond involved is the bond of love, and no other word is adequate to describe it. And then finally, um, Thornton says that the spiritual direction relationship revolves around the relationship between a spiritual father and his spiritual children, or spiritual child, which in and of itself is a creative relationship. I mean, think about when a father and their kids play. You know, I, um, Jude, Rowan, and I, when we play, come up with all sorts of games, you know, and they're just totally off the cuff. I don't sit down and think, oh, well, we'll all invent this random game. We just do it. 
Like we did one the other day where Jude was just running down our hallway and I was throwing a ball at him and then he would fall. And that was just something we did for like 45 minutes. I don't know how it started. I just threw a ball at him and we kept doing it. But there was something creative about that. You know, we created this game and he really loved it. And Rowan came to really love it too. So that, that relationship between, especially a spiritual director who's a priest, but anybody who's occupying that kind of mentor position is, is acting as a kind of father to the child who's being directed. And so there can be a really creative uh, spark to that relationship that can be really cool and unique. You know, I mean, the way you relate to one child, not the way you relate to another child. And so different things can happen in different um, direction contexts. Now, those are all really important notes about spiritual direction. It's also important to say what spiritual direction is not. Spiritual direction is not therapy. Do not treat your spiritual director like a psychologist. You don't lay on a couch when he's giving you advice. He's not, he, spiritual directors will not prescribe you anything as far as um, actual medicine. Um, there are some issues where it is more appropriate to go to a therapist. Um, also, uh, spiritual direction is not pastoral counseling. Pastoral counseling is, is concerned with problems of practical life with an emphasis on those in trouble. So like if a couple's having a tough time in their marriage and they come to a priest, that's not spiritual direction, that's pastoral counseling. What do we need to do to kind of straighten this out, to get everybody on the same page? If somebody has trouble paying bills or trouble finding work, Again, that's maybe more of a pastoral counseling thing. Mental health, actually mental health issues would probably go under therapy more than um, pastoral counseling, though that could be included, I think, in pastoral counseling too. Um, But the idea is in pastoral counseling, you're helping someone who's in trouble, whereas in spiritual direction, you're kind of freed from the idea of trouble and you're you're just helping them develop in their spiritual lives. Um, It is also, so spiritual direction is not confession. You can have the same person be your confessor and your spiritual director, but they should be two distinct actions. Um, So if you have a rule, and let's say your rule is, oh, I I think I used this example earlier. Your rule is to make five to seven acts of recollection during the day, and you only make two. You do not need to go to the priest in the confessional and say, oh, I only made two acts of recollection. That would just be something to talk to your spiritual director about. I only made two acts of recollection. Spiritual director can then respond, well, why? I mean, was it that you were just too busy? Did you, are your, is your goal too um, intricate? You know, is your, is your act of recollection too long so you felt like you couldn't stop and do it? You know, I mean, and then they could get to the problem there, but it's a pragmatic question. It's not a, a moral question. Whereas, you know, if you, if you give someone the bird on the highway, then you should come to confession. You know, that's a confession thing. Um, so, um, and, and the thing too is that advice and spiritual direction is about getting you from point A to point B. It's saying, look, I know you and I know your temperaments and I know kind of where you are at, on, in your spiritual journey and I want to get you to the kind of next level. And so I'm going to give you these activities. In confession, it's like, you know, how do I stop being so angry and, you know, yelling at people while I'm driving? And the priest will give you advice specifically for that. He'll give you an act of penance specifically for that. And the thing, too, is that once you leave confessional, the priest is never going to follow up with you because that would break the seal of confession, right? So once the advice is given, you can take it or leave it, but the priest doesn't say, hey, by the way, did you, you, know, did you do what I said to do in the car and not? 
because that would just be totally inappropriate for him to do that. Whereas your spiritual director, you know, you come one month and the, pre, and the priest says, you know, try doing these prayers and you do them for a month. And the priest might say, well, what did you, how did that work out for you? So th- there's a more sustained relationship there, whereas confession has to be sort of just by its nature uh, very different as far as the advice that's given. And then finally, spiritual direction is not sermons, it's not a school of prayer, and it's not a retreat. Today is not, well, I guess it's a little bit like spiritual direction in that we're introducing the vocabulary, but it's not spiritual direction. Spiritual direction would be, you would come talk to me or Deacon David or, or another uh, clergy who, who you trust about, uh, about and, and it really should be intentional on both sides. Like you don't just come... You don't just drop by the office one day unannounced and say, hey, what should I do in order to, to grow a little bit? You know, it should be a real like, hey, you know, I, I would like you to pray about being my spiritual director. And the priest would say, okay, let me pray about that and then get together and, and you both decide this is what we want. Um, sometimes you have to ask a few times. I had to ask my current spiritual director three, four different times before he finally really answered me and was like, let's meet this day. <laughs> um, I think he wanted to make sure I was serious about it. And that kind of speaks to the relationship between a spiritual director and the person being directed. It is an entirely voluntary relationship. You know, one of the things in, in Anglicanism or Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy is that who your rector is in a parish is not always voluntary. You know, so if you go to Our Lady of the Fields, Roman Catholic Church, and they bring in a priest and you're like, I don't really like that guy very much. For most Catholics, they don't really leave over that. You know, you just kind of endure it because, you know, he gives you the sacrament, he preaches, you know, he does the liturgy, and that's fine. Um, There's not really a consumerism there, as sometimes in, like, evangelicalism, where, like, I like this pastor, so I go here, or I like these programs, so I go here. It's a little less, uh, it's a little less than that. So you're, so that is not really something that's freely chosen by, by most people. Um, hopefully they have a good relationship with their rector, but it's not um, the same as when you choose a spiritual director or a confessor. Um, so the freedom of choice is really important here. Um, it may be that, you know, and it's not even a, a negative judgment against a priest. You, know, you just say, I, I don't know that personality-wise or um, philosophically that, that this priest would necessarily be the best spiritual director for me, so I'm going to find a, a different priest to do spiritual direction. Um, now, that said, what should be prioritized when you're looking for a spiritual director is, um, is to have the right priorities. So, you know, it may be that his personality is a little grating, but he's also really competent. He's also got really sound judgment, um, and, um, and that, that's more important than some stylistic differences. And so um, the, the primary goal here is partnership to God's glory for pers- and personal progress. Once you have a director, too, it should be said, you are not obligated to keep that director. You're also not obligated to do every single thing that he says. Or Yeah, so um, he says we receive, Thornton says we receive direction from a priest in the same sense as from a policeman. He, advise us, he advises us to follow a certain road to get a certain place. He may even give us a choice of routes and point out their respective snags and merits. He does not order us against our will, unless it's a one-way street, when it's better to follow his directions all the same, nor does he get out of his car and take us there himself. That's, so it is a voluntary relationship. It's also important not to change too frequently. Don't go from one priest to another. And it's also important not to get too attached to an individual priest, especially because of his personality. 
you know, so if you get to the point, I think Thornton says, if you get to the point where you go, you know, oh, so-and-so just wouldn't do because he's not father so-and-so. That's probably not a good sign. Um, so he, he likens a spiritual director to be like a coach or a personal trainer. The goal is not just to restore or maintain strength and health, but to actually turn strength into a skill. Turn strength into a skill. Like I said, the relationship may include confession. It doesn't have to. You could have one director and one confessor, and neither of them have to be in your parish. One way uh, to keep accountable to a spiritual director, because there is an accountability aspect. Like I said, it's not really a moral, um, you know, oh, I didn't do daily office every day this week. It's not a reason to go to confession. But you do want to make notes about that because the more data your spiritual director has, the more informed of a decision he can make. So what this is called is a chapter of faults, which sounds really uh, formal and kind of dry, but it's not. It's just a record that you can send to your spiritual director, say like, look, here's, here's kind of my week, you know, and I did morning prayer every day except the one day that I'm really busy. And that then gives your spiritual director, you know, information. Okay, this person is really dedicated. They have a tough schedule. What can we do, you know, moving forward to, to address that? So again, it doesn't have to be, it's not really a, um, you don't plumb the depths for that like you do with, um, like you do with uh, examination and confession. So the idea here is to have a, a rule of prayer that you follow. So mass and daily office should be regular parts of that rule, but private prayer, canon, should be flexible. It should be made, a, a, a private rule should be made in consultation with your spiritual director. What practices can you do regularly that will benefit you? Direction should be practiced and the rule observed when things are going well. This is not something to do when your life feels like it's falling apart. It's true, there are no atheists and foxholes, but prayer is not just something we do when things are bad. A rule should be unobtrusive. Unobtrusive, not too much. Not too much. Um, A personal rule should be as simple and as efficient as possible. We don't want to clutter it. A good rule is creative, it's disciplined, it's not a burden. Not a burden. And by the way, some of these things, you know, they're habits. So when you first start morning and evening prayer, there are times where you go, oh, again. (laughs) But once you really get in the rhythm, it ceases to be a burden. It's something you get to do. It's almost like the day is not right at a certain point unless you've actually done morning and evening prayer. And that's a good place to be. Um, It's good to modify the rule when needed. It should be modified thoughtfully and preferably in advance and in conversation with your spiritual director. So, like, if you um, are a bodybuilder and Lent is coming up and you also have a big bodybuilding event, probably what you do as far as fasting should look a little different than what the actual requirements for fasting are. And that's okay. Um, It's the same is true of manual laborers. You know, manual laborers can't, I mean... They need to eat. They're out working all day. They have to have their energy. So it would be good for them to sit down with a spiritual director who could say, well, let's talk about some other things that we could do that accomplish similar ends but are slightly different. 
And then finally, the rule should be done with the fact that one is a parishioner in mind. Right? There's no individual isolated Christian. So the practice may be unique. Some of the individual practices you do may be unique. But the bulwark of the rule should be anchored in those corporate experiences, the mass, the daily office, etc. Now, to end, I just want to briefly talk about one, one other concept from Martin Thornton, which is the theology of the remnant. The rule is not for everyone. The rule's not for everyone. Not everybody in a church goes to Mass every Sunday and on all the red-letter days. They don't do morning and evening prayer, and they don't really do much by way of private prayer. They may pray before meals. They may you know, have intercessions that they keep or something, but they're not, they're not maybe doing regular rules of prayer. And that's okay. That's okay. All of us have different gifts. All of us have different vocations and callings. So this is not a, a retreat that's saying, you know, you better become a regular or else. What Thornton has in mind here is that there is this thing called the church that is the mystical body of all faithful people, like we say in the, in the prayer book. The church only ever exists in concrete expressions through parishes. Right, so the, all the parishes that exist compose the church militant and the people who are in them. The parish is the, is the channel of grace to the world. So we should have a real strong sense of mission here that we are the channel of grace for the city of Annapolis and for Anne Arundel County and Crownsville, all of this area, right? So, like, I mean, I, I've told this joke a few times. Like, there's a brewery nearby, and I call it the Parish Brewery, and I go there very often because as their chaplain, I have to. <laughs> there is a very real sense in which, though, that when I'm there in my collar and I get to talk to people, I get to know the workers, I get to, you know, I mean, they know me pretty well at this point. Um, I know people who go there regularly and we talk. And, you know, sometimes it really surprises me where all of a sudden someone wants to have a spiritual conversation about something. And I get to point them to the truth. I don't go in guns a-blazing, you know, leaving tracks and stuff. I very, you know, just getting to know them. I don't, I, if they don't, they don't ever have to come here. But they might, you know, 10 years down the road go, man, you know, I knew that priest that one time who was really cool and, and nice. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and, you know, go to church now because of that. You know, I mean, we just never know how that kind of stuff works. But the idea there is that we go out into our community and we bring... Uh, we, we pump life into it, you know, through our, through our actions. That's only possible because we are connected to a parish. That's our collective and individual mission is to do that here. Within this parish, there is a remnant of people who commit to doing the rule, who form what, that, this idea of a remnant. They do to the parish what our parish does to the world. They pump life into the parish through attending mass through prayer. So like our prayer warrior program, which you can sign up for downstairs on the bulletin board by the nursery. That's one of the ways that we're doing that to the parish, right? Bearing people's burdens, praying for them, interceding on their behalf. Um, That's really important work. And a parish can't function without that. So the remnant is really important. That Again, that doesn't mean people who aren't a part of the remnant aren't important or that they're not doing things that God calls them to. Um, so like we were ta- I was talking with David Smith about this the other night because he's, he's also a big Martin Thornton fan. And he was saying, you know, you might have someone who only comes on Sundays. And maybe they don't even come every Sunday, but they mention the church to someone. 
but yeah, I go to St. Paul's. Oh, I'll try St. Paul's, you know, and then they come. You know, I mean, so we just don't know how people are gifted and what they're called to do. So this is never an excuse to judge other people and say, oh, you, you came to the retreat, but now I notice you're not doing morning and evening prayer every day. You know, that's not the point. The point is just setting this out as saying, look, this is something that the church needs. It may be something you're called to. It may be something you're not called to. But it's really important to understand the context in which this is occurring, right? Our job is not putting on a nice show on Sunday mornings for people. It's not uh, giving them a fix of nostalgia. It's not, um, it's not being uh, seeker-friendly, um, anything like that. Our job is to pump life into the world, which we do here by receiving that life. And part of this process, you know, in order to make the machinery work well, is the regula. If this is something you're interested in, exploring further, being intentional about these things, then I would highly recommend you come talk to me or Deacon David. Again, you don't have, I, you know, we do, neither he nor I have to be your spiritual director, but if it's something you want to pursue, let us know. And, and you can even say, you know, I'd, I'd like to maybe find someone outside the parish. Great, let me refer you to a few people who I think would be good for you, you know. And, and, and so we can have those kind of conversations moving forward. But, but I, do, I do think it's important for us to have this framework. Remnant to parish, parish to community. Um, because we have to have the right idea of what our mission is in order to accomplish that mission. So any uh, questions as we kind of close our time together? No news is good news, I guess. Well, great. Well, um, if you give us just a few minutes, we will uh, we'll do uh, communion here, um, and then we will be on our way. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been really fun. I've really enjoyed our conversations. I always enjoy these formats. It's a little lo- um, lower time investment than like an extended Bible study. You know, we just we come one day, we have some really good conversations, and hopefully learn a few things. Um, and so I really appreciate it. So thank you for being here. And um, we'll, I'm hoping that this becomes something we do about once a quarter. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.